So, uh, by way of introduction, as we make our way to Matthew chapter 4, if you want to get your Bibles out to that spot, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some located in the seat pockets also in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, congratulations, you just got yourself a new Bible. Take that with you. Uh, if you're a child of technology, you can pull open uh, your favorite app on your idle phone or your Satan song, whichever one you choose to use, uh, but you can pull that up right there. But as we head that direction, I'm just going to remind you that the gospel according to Matthew was written intentionally to look at Jesus from the angle of the Jewish Messiah. He's writing to Jews, and he's writing about specifically Jesus being the one they had waited thousands of years to see, the, the long-awaited Messiah. And each one of the gospel accounts we talked about showed Jesus from a different angle. Uh, for example, Mark writing uh, to a group of Romans, or to the Roman nation at large, which was made up predominantly of servants, and he projects Jesus as the oxen, right? The suffering servant that was uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke, writing to the Greek audience, he writes about Jesus being the perfect man. And then with John, he writes of the deity of Christ. And so we see with each of these different four gospel accounts, we get a different uh, picture of Jesus. But in Matthew, he's writing about Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to fulfill these prophecies, which is why the key word in the gospel of Matthew is fulfilled. And it's also why, as Matthew writes, he doesn't write chronologically for us, but instead he writes topically, right? His topic is Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. It means anointed one. And so he's been anointed as both our king and our priest and our prophet. He is our savior. And so he wants to lay this out there for us. And it's also why what we're going to see this morning as we take a jump from uh, verse 11 where we finished off last week in the temptation of Christ to verse 12, we actually see a one-year time gap. So a year takes place between verse 11 and verse 12. And so if any of you are fans of Marty McFly, you might wonder what in the world happened. Let's go back to the future a little bit and let's explore what took place in this year. But before we do that, let's read through a passage of Scripture. We'll read uh, the remainder from verse 12 to the end of chapter 4, and then we'll comb back through this as we look to see what exactly took place in this time gap. Verse 12 of chapter 4 of Matthew says this, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, who have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
In verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to Him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and He healed them. Great multitudes followed Him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Father, we thank You so much for this Word. We pray as we open our Bibles that You would speak to us, that You would take these words written on black and white paper, and yet You would have them jump out of the page and sink deep into our hearts and to our minds. So Lord, as we open this Scripture, please open our hearts. In Jesus' name. So, as I mentioned to you in the intro, we've got this one-year time gap. Now, the Gospel of John does a good job of painting a picture of what took place in this one year. John chapters 1 through 4, we'll just go through and hit the highlights. Uh, what we see is uh, in chapter 3, right, we looked at Jesus being baptized there by John the Baptist. And, and at the end of chapter 3, this amazing thing happens. The heaven opens and God says, this is my son and who I'm. Uh, I love him and I'm well pleased in him. Jesus then leaves his baptism. And what we looked at last week is he was tempted out in the wilderness. 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and he was tempted there. Now what we find is from the wilderness, uh, he then leaves, the Gospel of John tells us, after his baptism and he goes up to Cana. This is close to his hometown and he goes to a wedding. Right? He ends up at the wedding uh, that John records, and this is where he uh, performs his first miracle. His mother is there, and as she's there, they have a major tragedy at the wedding. They run out of wine. Right? So she comes to Jesus and she says, Whoa, we've got a big problem. We've got a seven-day wedding feast and no wine. So Jesus, performing his first miracle, he turns the water into wine, and all is well. Now, as a little sidebar, uh, many believe, I would be one of these, that this is actually the wedding of John. Not John the Baptist, but John the Revelator, the writer of the Gospel of John. It's the reason he can write this from a firsthand type of account, and that Jesus and John were actually cousins, much like he was to also John the Baptist. That's the reason his mother Mary was so intentional about we've got a big family issue, because they were family, and this is the reason Jesus would have been at the wedding. So, little sidebar there, but also as a sidebar, uh, if you've ever been to a wedding that doesn't have Jesus, what you find is there's no joy. Wine in the Bible is always a picture of joy. So if you go to a wedding and there is no Jesus, you will find a spot where there does not exist joy at the wedding. So anyway, I digress. But what we find is Jesus leaves then from Cana and he goes back to Jerusalem because it is Passover, right? So if Jesus is going to fulfill all of the law, one of the requirements for Jewish males is for the three major feasts of the year, they were to go back to Jerusalem. Those three major feasts being Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which they just celebrated here at the first part of October. And so he heads back to Jerusalem for the Passover, and when he arrives, he goes to the temple and he sees money changers, right? There are all these Pharisees and Levites that are taking advantage of the people. And little Jesus, meek and mild, does not take this 
uh, lying down. In fact, he fashions a cord of whips or a whip, and he goes and he begins to drive out the money changers. He runs them out of the temple. But what Jesus exhibits here for us is that it is okay to be righteously angry. My problem is I am rarely righteously angry. I am often self-righteously angry, though, uh, which is not biblical, and it is, in fact, sinful. But Jesus here, when it comes to taking people being taken advantage of by the religious elite, he drives these money changers uh, out of the temple. And it's here after this event in Jerusalem that he's visited in John 3 by a character named Nicodemus. Now this is significant because Nicodemus is known as the teacher of Israel. He is one of the top rabbis in all of the nation of Israel, and he comes to visit Jesus. What we find is later he actually becomes a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus is one with Joseph of Arimathea that they take the body of Christ after his crucifixion and they place him into the tomb. And so a significant interaction between these two. Now, from here, Jesus goes out into the wilderness with some of his followers and they begin to baptize people in the same kind of an area that John the Baptist is baptizing people, which causes John's followers to go, wait a minute, we followed John the Baptist. That's our job. You can't be baptizing people. He's not Jesus the Baptist. You can't be baptizing. That's our deal. And so as we think about that, uh, so often in church today, what do we do? Right? We get upset that other people do our thing. Right? How could they possibly do our thing? That's our thing. They need to go do their own thing. Right? And so as we kind of grow as this little church plant, we teach through the Bible expositionally, I promise you what will happen is somewhere along the line, another spot in this area, they will begin to teach expositional Bible teaching. Now, it will come up where we'll get maybe some of you, maybe me, we'll get a little upset. Wait a minute, that's our thing. That's our niche. That's what God sent us here for. Except here's what John the Baptist told his followers, and it's important to remember this. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. Speaking of Jesus. That at all points, John was focused on the increase of Christ and the decrease of self. So oftentimes we can get spun out, especially in denominations that other people take our thing, but the point of all of this is Jesus. And last I checked, everybody in this town and all these neighborhoods are not in church. So it doesn't matter how many things we have out there, we don't have enough of them yet, otherwise they'd be in here. So this is what John says, I must decrease and he must increase. And yet, uh, these words, I don't know that John completely understood what he said because just shortly after this event, he is thrown into prison by Herod, not Herod the Great, but his son, Herod the Tetrarch, has John thrown into prison. And whenever I think about decreasing in my life, I'm like, oh Lord, just take away fast food or something like that. Certainly don't take me into prison, right? In fact, what would eventually happen is John the Baptist would, would lose his life for Christ. He would lose his head for Jesus. So Jesus hears about this. This is where we picked up in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, so he heard that Herod the Tetrarch threw John the Baptist into prison, he heads back up to the Galilee outside of the control of Herod the Tetrarch. He's after Christians, right? So he heads back up to the Galilee area, but on his way, he says, by the way, I need to take a little detour. I need, I must needs to go through Samaria. Now, uh, this may just seem like flyover territory when we read through it, 
But, but let me express to you, if you've ever been to a major city in America, there's always those places where you intentionally do not go through. I'm not going to list them out, but you know what I'm talking about. You intentionally avoid that spot. That's Samaria for these people. In fact, for Jewish uh, males that are practicing uh, their religion, they would oftentimes pray, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a Samaritan, or a woman. That's how they would pray, right? They would actually call them Samaritan dogs. And they don't mean like your cute little foofy dog that fits in your purse. They're talking about nasty junkyard dogs, right? So thank you for not making me this. And yet, here's Jesus. He's intentionally, in fact, he's saying, I must go to Samaria. And why does he say that? Because he has a meeting with a Samaritan woman at a well. So not only did he just go to the place where they think they're dogs, but he goes and speaks to and meets with a woman. And what he finds is that her whole life gets turned upside down by Jesus. Not only does she find the Savior, but a whole group of people, which caused Jesus to look upon this and say to his followers, look, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Right? So what he found in Samaria was a great harvest. He leaves from there, and then he goes to his hometown in this Galilee region of Samaria, and he enters the synagogue, and Luke chapter 4 gives us this account. He goes into the synagogue in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. We read, And so he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And it, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he went to church, in other words, and stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And so what they do in Jewish synagogues is if you're a rabbi or you're a teacher, they read through the text. They teach verse by verse through the Bible. But they don't have a Bible. They have these large scrolls of the prophets and the law. And so they hand Jesus this scroll of Isaiah to write where they were teaching at. And he picks it up and he reads. He found the place where it was written this in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, recover, and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can imagine the scene. Everybody's staring at Jesus. And he says, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today is the day that this scripture is fulfilled. Now, all of them in the synagogue knew what he was saying. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. If you've ever been to a church where they say Jesus through the Gospels never says that he's God or that he's Messiah, that is a lie. He was saying it over and over again. He was trying to make it abundantly clear. Going to Scriptures, he's saying, this is me today, this is fulfilled. And now how did they react in his hometown of Nazareth? Uh, they ran him out of town and tried to kill him. That's how they reacted. Not great. Not the kind of reaction you're hoping for as a Bible teacher when you open the, the text. And so I can only hope things don't go this poorly for me today. All right. So what happens is he leaves Nazareth saying, look, even a prophet a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so he leaves his hometown. And he goes just a few miles away to the area of Capernaum, 
which is located right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so I put a picture there uh, from a few years back. That's my good friend, a fellow pastor, Mike Mingi, and I standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. I put that up there to show to you, to prove, in case you needed additional proof that Jesus was no dummy, he set his ministry headquarters up in one beautiful spot. I mean, this is gorgeous, right? He didn't set it up in some backwoods place, right? Much like what's happened for me, right? Originally from KZ, no profit, no, no honor in my hometown. Where do I end up? Along the shores of Lake Charleston. Same thing, right? Just like Jesus. Right here, beautiful shores of Lake Charleston. All right. Let's continue on as we look at the text at hand. What Jesus uh, uh, says here, back to Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> we see that this is now fulfillment of the prophecies in verses 15 through 17. This is fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And what Isaiah calls this area that Jesus sets up his ministry headquarters is a Galilee of the Gentiles here in Capernaum. And quick little Bible trivia do any of you expert Bible students know what Old Testament prophet uh, was home? Or what Capernaum was home of? Anybody know? I really butchered that question. Does anybody know what who came from this town? All right. Nahum is the Old Testament prophet. I know you guys spent a lot of time in the Minor Prophets looking uh, through those, but Nahum is from Capernaum. The town was called Caper Nahum, village of Nahum. So there you go. I have no idea what you're going to do with that information, but now you know. So what, uh, but what Isaiah calls this, and, and actually the reason I bring that up, is he calls this Galilee of the Gentiles. And yet, in the Old Testament, you see, this was a village of Old Testament prophets. So how is this a Gentile region, especially when it's called the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali? When Joshua brought the nation of Israel over through the wilderness into the promised land, they split up all of Israel so that each tribe would have a different region that they would live in. And so Naphtali is one of the tribes, one of the sons of Jacob. Zebulun is one of the sons of Jacob. These were Jewish areas, and yet what Isaiah says is these were Gentile regions. So a little Jewish history lesson. What took place is after the reign of King David, he's an awesome king, man after God's own heart. He then is followed up by his son, Solomon. While he was a great king, a man of peace, his name means peace, he did not follow after God. And so what happens is then his son, Rehoboam, takes over. And as Rehoboam takes over the nation of Israel, he's approached by the leaders of the nation. And they say, look, your dad, great guy, whole lot of peace, except really bad with the taxes. How about you cut back our tax bill a little bit, bud? And so he responds, uh, not great. He says, uh, my dad's waist isn't as big as my pinky. In other words, if you think it was taxed heavy during Solomon, I'm going to make it worse. And so what happens is the entire nation is then split apart over taxes. That's a shocker. Uh, split apart. The ten northern tribes go with a guy named Jeroboam, and Rehoboam is left with only Judah and Benjamin. Which is why, as we look at Old Testament history, they are forever called the northern tribes uh, Israel, and the southern two tribes are called uh, Judah. They become two nations. Now, for the history of the nation of Israel, they had 20 kings throughout their uh, history, and absolutely none of them were good guys. Zero out of 20. In fact, they were so bad that what happened is that in 722 B.C., 
Assyria came down that God allowed them to be invaded and then taken off as captives. And what Assyria would do is they would take uh, nations captive. They would take out all the rich, all the uh, you know, really intelligent people. They would take them all off and they would leave behind the poor of your land and then they would bring in other nations. Right? They would bring in other Gentile nations to live there and then they would populate with the people that were left. Essentially what they would do is breed out your culture. Within one to two generations, the Jewish culture would be wiped out just due to marriage, right? And so this is what happened, and this is why Isaiah says this is Galilee of the Gentiles. This is that northern region that had been populated now by the Gentile people. They had bred together, and so all of their Jewish culture had, had basically gone away, and they had become very dark spiritually right they've gone back to worshiping pagan gods now then what john writes in john chapter 1 as jesus uh, is reflected his deity john chapter 1 verse 1 he writes this in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made and here's what i wanted to point out in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say the darkness could not extinguish it. So here's Jesus. He's come into this Gentile dark area where there's idolatry and, and all kinds of weird pagan worship taking place, and he is the light in this dark place. And what is his message? He says here in verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preaches a message of repentance. And repentance, if you remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's a change in mind that leads to a change in action. This is the message that Jesus has for them. Now then, verses 18 through 22, we see the, the calling of the first four of the disciples. And what we find is he begins with Simon, called Peter, in verse 18, and his brother Andrew. And they're out fishing here in the in the Sea of Galilee when he calls them. But let me just point back to John chapter 1. We talked about that one-year time gap. This is not actually the first time that these guys meet. That in fact, uh, Andrew and Peter were both followers of John the Baptist. So Andrew's standing there with John the Baptist after the baptism of Jesus. And John looks at Jesus walking by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a light bulb goes on for Andrew. Ding, ding, ding. This guy's the Messiah. So what's he do? He goes and finds his brother Peter. He brings him to Jesus. And, and Jesus asks them both this question. What do you seek? Right? The first question that has to be answered when it comes to salvation. What is it you're seeking? What they sought was Messiah. They sought eternal security. They wanted to be saved. And yet, Jesus did not call them immediately into service. I think that's important to point out. That lots of times there is a gap between salvation and service. Right? There, there is a time period that is filled. And we see this even in the case of the Apostle Paul. Right? The, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus has this unbelievable light bulb turned on Jesus moment. Right? He's blinded. He goes to Damascus. He becomes. A, he went from a guy that was persecuting the church, looking to kill Christians, to now being a Christian himself in this miraculous way. And then what happens with his ministry? Nothing. Nothing happens with his ministry. 
For 10 years, Paul sat on the sidelines until he finally gets a call up out of the minors from Barnabas and says, hey man, let's go to work. And so I wanted to offer that up as encouragement. If you're in a spot where you've got salvation and yet you have no service, continue to invest, continue to spend time in the Word of God. This is the spot He will He will teach you. He will bring things out. And amazingly, through that journey, He will call you into the spot that He has for you. Now for me, when I actually came to know Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm, we're in Farmington, Missouri. You know, seemingly all hell broke loose in our life. God brings all this back and, and He starts to, to rebuild relationships and mend things and put things back together. And yet what I found is I was just driving all over the place uh, building Dollar Trees. Like, gosh, I don't want to do this. And I remember meeting with my pastor going, I don't want to just go build Dollar Trees. Like, this is, this is so boring. And I want to go do something for Jesus, but he hasn't given me anything. And, and my pastor, because he was, he was so wise, he looked at me and he said, you're an idiot. Like, really? That's all you got for me? I'm an idiot. He said, you've got this wonderful opportunity to go to Bible college while you drive around. Like, you're getting paid to go drive around where you can just listen to Bible teaching all day long. I'm thinking, I am an idiot. I can just drive around and listen to Bible teaching. And so God took that period of time between salvation and a call to service to just literally get thousands of hours of Bible teaching doing the thing that I hated doing. I didn't want to go do that, but it was the very thing that he used to lead me into service. And so that leads us into the next point as we look at these guys. What you'll notice is uh, they were just doing what they did. For Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were doing what they knew. They were fishing, right? They weren't out doing anything special, and yet they were busy doing what they did. God didn't call them to get up off the couch. They didn't have this wonderful salvation moment, and then they were just laying on the couch going, Jesus, direct me, Jesus. I don't want to move unless you tell me to move. I'm just going to lay right here in this spot. Right? They didn't, they didn't do that. They got up, and they just did what they did. Day after day, they went back and, and they fished. And so oftentimes, what will happen is God will call us while we just are doing what we do every day. Lots of times we don't even expect it, right? This could, could very much be the case for these four. And so this leads me to a question, why so many fishermen, right? Anybody ever wonder, out of the 12 called disciples, this inner group of 12, why so many fishermen? I mean, here's four guys, and there were possibly even up to seven fishermen out of the 12. And so this seems a little fishy, man. Sorry, that's all I could come up with. But, but as we think about fishermen... What are some of the characteristics of a fisherman? There must be something to this. And so to be a fisherman, you must, the first thing is you must be patient to be a fisherman, right? You cannot be impatient as a fisherman, which explains why I'm a horrible fisherman. I hate to fish, but I'm also exceedingly impatient, right? I don't want to sit and wait for this fish to bite. And look, these guys, they worked all night and they caught nothing. Right? They had worked all evening long. They hadn't caught a single thing when Jesus rolls up on them. And yet, they were patient in their craft. They were just continuing to work. And I look at my kids and what I find is we are growing more and more impatient as they go on. We just spent the weekend camping at Fox Ridge. So if you smell a campfire, that's me. 
But we just spent the weekend camping, and, and I told the kids for years that the TV and the camper uh, didn't work, that it was broken. So that was a little bit of a lie. I'm sorry, Lord, about that. But I turned the TV on, and what's baby Madeline ask for? I want to watch YouTube Kids. Sorry, there's no YouTube Kids. You're on the antenna. You're going to get 2, 10, and 38 if you're lucky. Right? That's what I grew up with. That's what you get. So I'm messing with the antenna to get PBS Kids. Well, I want to watch Fancy Nancy. And she's up there pushing on the TV screen. Nothing happens. Right? Because we've raised her to be impatient. I should be able to push on this thing, and then in two and a half minutes, I'm satisfied. Yeah, but here's these guys. They are patient in their craft. The next thing you must be to be a fisherman is you must be diligent, right? They must diligently work. And even if they weren't skilled to begin with, what you find is that through constant repetition, you become uh, diligent, right? You become skilled through your diligence is what I'm trying to say, right? Through this, what, what do we tell our kids, right? Practice makes perfect, right? Practice, practice, practice. And what you find is over time, you build a skill. And so that's these guys. They, they have varying degrees of success in their fishing operation. And yet over and over again, they're just diligent to do what they do every day. Here they are. They're mending the nets. Even though they didn't catch anything, they're cleaning nets and mending nets. And the third thing you must be to be a fisherman is you must be faithful, right? That the best fisherman thinks, this is what I can't get my mind wrapped around, but the best fisherman thinks every time they go out, it's going to be a great day. There's going to be a great catch. Otherwise, why go do it? Why not just stay home if you're not going to catch fish? They sell them at Schnooks, right? Go to the produce section. That's a whole lot easier for me. And yet here, these fishermen, day in and day out, they have faith, right? They are faithful in what they do. They go out expecting today is going to be the day. And yet for these guys, today was very much not the day. They caught nothing. Except when they come back to shore, what Luke's account in Luke chapter 5 actually tells us is Jesus looks upon these four, uh, Peter and uh, Andrew in particular. He looks at these two and he goes, hey, throw your nets back in again. Try the other side, why don't you? Throw your nets back in, guys. Just give it another crack. And now he, Peter says, look, we've been fishing all night. Really? Like this is your deal? We're going to throw the nets in, but why not? Go ahead. Here's that faith we talk about. They throw their nets in again, and they bring in such a haul of fish that it begins to sink their boat. They actually have to call over James and John. This is why Jesus was able to call all four of them at the same time, because their boat was about to sink. They had so many fish. And what I'm bringing that up to say is that even the worst fishing, the absolute worst spot you could be in with Jesus has potential. Right? Now what this also means is, and this is the scary part, is that no matter how hard I try, no matter how much effort I put into it, if Jesus isn't into it, it don't matter. If He's not behind that thing, if he's not saying, today is the day for you, it doesn't matter how well I prepare the message. It doesn't matter uh, how much I think this is going to apply and I think this is going to be really great. This is for them, Lord. It doesn't matter because Jesus didn't have that in mind. But at the same time, it means no matter how badly I blow it this morning, if Jesus says today's the day, it's going to be a great day to catch fish. 
And so this is, this is where this idea of but God comes in, right? So we had a dear friend uh, in Farmington that just passed away a couple months ago. And she was kind of uh, Angela's, uh, like, a, like a mother in the faith. And they did Bible studies together. Her name was Sandy Gallagher. And she was this beautiful, spirit-filled lady. And she died in a tragic car accident. But uh, Angela would spend time with her. And they would, they would talk about problems and things before their Bible studies. And just a great time to share. And one of Sandy's favorite phrases is Angela would pour her heart out and say, here's all the ways my husband blew it this week. <laughs> she would say, oh, but God, but God. So I'm going to turn with you to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And we're going to be looking specifically at verse 4. But before we get to verse 4, here's what Paul has to say to make them feel better about themselves in the church in Ephesus. He tells them, you're all dead. <laughs> you're all dead. Dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses. And there is absolutely nothing you can do. Like, right? You, you, are, you are eternally uh, in really bad shape. You are dead people. Welcome to the church at Ephesus. But then in verse 4, what he says is, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's but God. That makes all the difference. By grace through faith is how we are saved. There's not any work I can possibly do to deserve this, and yet what does God do? By grace, He allows me in. By grace, He allows me to be seated at His right hand. And here's even more mind-blowing. He's prepared work for me to do even before He made me. He prepared the work, and then He said, oh boy, i got somebody good in mind to do that work. I'm going to set Him up to do that thing. I already have it all in mind. It's all figured out and worked out. So depending on which side of the equation you fall into, this is either really glorious or really terrifying. And this is why when this great haul of fish came in here in Matthew, when we're looking at why when, when they got to shore, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Right? Peter knew himself. He knew what Paul just addressed. I'm a dead man walking. Right? I'm a sinful man. Peter's a fisherman which means he's got the mouth of a fisherman. He's like, listen, Lord, you don't know what I just said out there when I'm you know, toiling around with my brother all night. I had some choice words. And yet, what he says is, you got to get away from me. I'm sinful. Like, only God could do this. And yet, Jesus' comment to him in verse 10 of Luke 5 is, don't be afraid. I came for you, Peter. Don't be afraid. And so he welcomes him in. And so immediately, these guys left. 
Immediately when they were called, they left. And what did they leave behind? They left nets. They left boats. They left fish. They even left family. How would you like to be Zebedee in this spot, by the way? I mean, his sons just bailed on him. Like he's out there in the boat like, oh, hang on, Jesus. You just took all my help. They left everything behind. For what? For this. That they could travel with Jesus, who in verse 23 went all about Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted in various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And so this is what Jesus' ministry looked like. This is what they left for. Preaching and teaching is the first hallmark in the life of Jesus. What he came to do was to teach and to preach. Now, a lot of what we do here on Sundays, it looks like teaching, right? But any teaching should, if it's any good, have a little bit of preaching in it, right? Preaching just means to herald with emotion. So hopefully I got emotional, right? It's hard to get emotional sitting in a swivel stool, but I'm trying. But another piece of this is, is we do sit and have conversation too. Why do we do that? Well, we're going to see next week. Jesus sat and taught. That's one of the good reasons why. It's also conversation with friends, right? It's talking about the life of Christ with friends, but it's, it's to teach and to preach. He came for these two things first. And what did he teach? He taught repentance. Change things up, right? Change your mind. It'll change your life. So any good teaching should have preaching and any good preaching should have teaching. They go hand in hand. And then secondly, and intentionally below this, there was healing, right? And who did he heal? What is written in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. I love this verse. Therefore, He is able to save, to heal the uttermost, those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So the catchphrase I like is, He goes to the uttermost to save the guttermost. So if you have breath in your lungs, He came to save you. Period. He came to save to the uttermost. And then, as He came to save and to heal, yes, Jesus did physical healings, right? And if you're in a spot where you need a physical healing, by all means, we would love to pray for that. But He also ultimately came for the eternal healings. He came to see new creation, right? To, give, to see life come, new life, new creations, things that would last eternal. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is, this is one if you're a highlighter, Highlight this verse. Because Jesus didn't just come so people would be healed in a temporary fashion. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if you're seeking healing, yes, he is still the same God. He can heal in this world. I've seen him do it. Uh, just last year, actually, we had a lady that had her hands were so arthritic that she couldn't even open her hand, but she didn't ask for healing. We actually had a, a healing service. When Daniel Messiah was here, he called people forward to ask for healing. She went to lay her hands on someone else, and then all of a sudden, 
her hands were magically healed. Not magically, through Jesus, right? He healed her in that very spot because she had enough faith to pray for somebody else. And she jumped up and down. She said, oh, Brock, my hands. I haven't been able to do this in 10 years. It was amazing to see. Yet here's the really amazing part with Jesus is he's coming to see new creation. So there's a reason we do this week in and week out. It's so that people can see themselves as new creation. And folks, one other point while I'm on my soapbox since I'm the one with the microphone. I am tired of hearing from folks that say I am a recovered fill-in-the-blank with Jesus. Because here's the thing. If you have Jesus, you are a new creation. You are no longer a recovered anything. You are a new creation. For me, I have struggled. I struggled for 35 years with alcohol. Not 35 years because I didn't drink when I was a baby. I struggled for, <laughs> for years with alcohol. It was a challenge, right? It, it was time and time again. I, I convinced myself that this was a way to medicate, right? Self-medicate. Why? Because everything that I'd sought in my life, everything the world told me to go after, success, money, family, all of it, I had all of that, and yet I was miserable. I was miserable. I didn't have any peace. I had no happiness. And so what am I going to do? I'm just going to have a little drink, right? A little drink, take the edge off. Now, to most people that would see me interacting, you would, you would go, listen, there's nothing wrong with that guy. I was a functioning alcoholic. I could be a very successful alcoholic. And yet I was one miserable son of a gun. And it didn't matter how much I tried to get away from that, minus Jesus, there was no getting away from it. I could not get the pressure to be relieved in my head except through a drink. And then, one day, just like that, gone. Right? All the bar area downstairs, carted all the way upstairs, all thrown in the trash. I didn't think to empty it before I threw it in the trash, so the poor trash guy snapped the handle off the garbage can. He might have said a few curse words, but there was a couple thousand dollars worth of booze in that trash can. You see, with Jesus, I am no longer a recovering alcoholic. I am a new creation. And now it doesn't bother me. I can be around it. I can be, you can, you can sit right here. It doesn't matter to me. To me, that was my thing, though. I identified with that. And now my identity is rooted and grounded in Christ. And so if you are struggling with a thing, understand that according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are no longer that old thing. You don't have to wear those old clothes. You are a new creation. Praise God. So over and over again, what we find is that as God heals people, He is always concerned with the eternal and not always concerned with the temporary. Right? So as He looks at a situation, He is continuously concerning Himself with where are you going to spend eternity at because I love you enough that I want you to come with me. And so multitudes upon multitudes of people came seeking Jesus for temporary healing. Multitudes of people come to churches week in and week out looking for Jesus for temporary healing. And yet what He offers is permanent, eternal healing. That's the thing we need to be praying for in people's lives. So here, for these followers, these new followers to Christ, Here's the thing. Following Jesus is 
all oftentimes not convenient. Oftentimes it is not convenient in no way, shape, or form, but it is always worth it. Think about it for these men for a second. They left everything. They left jobs. They left money. They left family. They left it all for what? Seemingly, based on what the world sees, for nothing. And yet eternally, they left for everything. I promise you, if you leave whatever thing it is you're still holding on to, that you just can't quite give up for Jesus, I'm going to hang on to this thing. If you will leave that behind for Him, He will give you everything. Now, will it cost you? Absolutely. Is it difficult? Yes, it is. Difficult for sure. I mean, Jesus taught on this earth. He spent 33 years walking around, and and multitudes upon multitudes came after Him, and yet... How many are left that final you know, time frame as, he's, as they're gathered there in the upper room? He's been crucified. 120 believers. That's it. It is difficult. It is challenging. It will cost you your life, and yet it will give you everything. All of it will be changed. Just like that. Because you will be a new creation. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the words of life. Thank you for the bravery and the the faith of these fishermen who left an entire catch of fish there on the shores to follow after you. And I think about how many times you've let me haul in a tremendous catch and I have not had the faith to walk away. Father, I pray for that. I pray for that in my own life, that I would grow in my faith daily to be a fisher of men, to be far more concerned about people's eternal destiny than I am my own temporary comfort. Thank you, Lord, for building stories in our lives so that we can see the way uh, you, you let this all play out so we can relate to people, so we can share in our stories, we can share in our experiences. Lord, I thank you for those hard times, those things that you taught me. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for them. Lord, I praise you for them. But then thank you that you don't leave us in that spot. Thank you that you pluck us out of the fire like a brand taken from the fire, and you use it. You use it all for our good and all for your glory. Thank you, Father, for what you're up to. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your life. In Jesus' name, amen.